So this morning we're going to continue in our series, Heed the Warning. So everyone's finding their seats. If you'll turn to your Bibles, Jude verse 5. Jude verse 5. And Daniel asked me the other day, he said, he said, you're still in Jude? He said, how in the world can you get that many sermons out of Jude? Well, there's just a lot in here. So uh, we're just going to keep dealing with it for about uh, five more weeks. And then, we'll, and then we'll be done with Jude, I promise. So Jude verse 5. The title of the sermon today is, is Unshakable Faith, Part 2. So we talked about unshakable faith last time I preached from Jude. And we really spoke of it from more of a negative sense. Um, the fact that the children of Israel rebelled against God and they said, after the spies went in and spied out the land, they said, though the people there are too strong, they're too powerful, we can't take the land. And we know that that brought forth great judgment in their lives, that brought forth a great chasm between them and God. And it was just a difficult time in the history of the nation of Israel, ultimately resulting in 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Uh, and, G and God even told them, he said, no one from this generation will see the promised land until every one of your corpses, and this is the biblical language, your corpses have fallen to the ground in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. But there is a bright spot in that story, and that bright spot is Caleb. So we're going to deal with Caleb today. So we're going to read Jude verse 5. So if everyone will, please stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for his word. Jude verse 5. And here Jude is referencing this event in the Old Testament as a warning to us today to be very careful. Beginning in verse 5, it says this, Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful, God, for the book of Jude, uh, that your earthly half-brother penned this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we are thankful for the truth that is in your word, not just in your word, but the fact that your word is truth in its entirety. Every word Every bit in these scriptures, in these 66 books, is the breathed out word of God. So, Lord, today as we study your word, we know that it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and we know that it can certainly cut us, Lord, to our very soul and spirit. So, Lord, today we entrust this word into your hands, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, as we spoke a few weeks ago, we know that unshakable faith always begins with a promise. Without a promise, faith is irrelevant. You know, there are many people who have faith. Many people who say, I just believe, let's say, in myself. Or I just believe that all people are, are really good. Or I just believe that everything's going to turn out okay. But if you think about those statements, they really have no warrant. They have no relevance. They're, there's really no power behind faith just for the sake of faith. Just because you believe something is going to happen doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. But faith that is actually powerful, faith that is actually uh, rooted in something important, that kind of faith can mean something. That kind of faith can truly be something that you can put your uh, stock in, that you can stand upon. Well, as we see, Christian faith is trusting in Jesus Christ. And what we say is we have faith for instance, that once you confess the Lord Jesus, that he is the Savior, that he died and rose again, that you shall be saved. 
Well, I'm not just believing that just to believe it, or I'm not just basing that just on my hopes. I'm basing that on his word. I'm basing that on a promise that he has given. You may say, well, Ben, who cares what God promises? How can we rest in the promises of God if we don't really trust God? Well, look at his track record. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's accomplished. Look at throughout the history of humanity what God has promised and if God has come through with his promises or not. Look and see if God truly is a God of his word. And if you look at his track record, then you're going to find that he is spotless. He is undefeated when it comes to keeping his promises. God's word is golden. And when he says it, you can take stock that it's going to happen. It starts with a promise. And that's where unshakable faith must begin. So as we spoke about the children of Israel, we found that they rejected the word of God. Now I want to give you a little backstory here. So the children of Israel have just been freed from Egyptian slavery, all right? Some 400 years under the rule of Egyptian pharaohs, and God frees the Israelites. Under the the leadership of Moses, God parts the Red Sea, and the children of Israel walk across on dry land. And as they enter to the boundary of the promised land, about to enter into the promised land, they start to have this uh, wavering faith. And they actually come and say, Moses, maybe we should send a few spies in first just to make sure we kind of have a heads up on all that we're going to encounter once we get into the promised land. Because it was well known that in the promised land was many enemies of Israel, civilizations who had been there for centuries. And they knew that as they entered the promised land, they were going to have to fight these people who had made Canaan land their home for many centuries before. They knew that it was going to be a battle, that God told them to possess the land, but that was not to say that they would not have to fight battles in order to possess it. So as they sent the spies in, the spies stay there for 40 days in the promised land, looking at the cities, looking at the type of people that inhabit it, looking at the type of food that the land grows, looking at all these different things. And there was one person from each tribe of Israel, 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel went. And when they came back and they reported about what they had found, 10 of the leaders, representing 10 of the tribes of Israel, said, No, we cannot take the land. The people there are far too strong, far too great. They will destroy us and they will crush us. Two of the leaders of two of the tribes of Israel said, But God said that he would give us this land. Let's go in and possess it. However, the majority outweighed the minority They rejected and rebelled against the word of God, against his promise that he would give them the land. And then they were cursed to stay in the wilderness for 40 years until every adult died in that generation. And then when the last one's corpse hit the ground, as the Bible says, then they were able to go into the promised land. So now we come to this place where we've already talked about the the lack of faith in the children of Israel. Now we're going to talk about the minority, the minority in the the nation of Israel who said, no, we can do this because we're going to stand on the promises of God. We're going to have unshakable faith because it's rooted in the promises of God. Now, as we talked about before, a promise is just that. It's just a promise. But who is making the promise? Because if you can trust the one making the promise, then you can trust that the promise is going to come true. 
God's anger kindled against Israel in such a way that he was willing to destroy them at that moment, the Bible says. And then Moses pled on their behalf, don't destroy them, don't destroy them. And God didn't destroy them. So as we think about this minority, I want to focus in my sermon today on Caleb. He was one of the leaders of one of the 12 tribes of Israel that went and inspired. He was from the tribe of Judah, which is the same tribe that our Lord Jesus Christ is a descendant of and came from. But before we talk about Caleb, I think Memorial Day, this is fitting, that we look at General George Washington. He was a hero and still is a hero of our country. So despite having achieved a decisive victory at the Battle of Yorktown in October 1781, threats to the patriotic cause continued. Now, if you study American history, you're going to find time and time again, there were these uh, obstacles that the people of this country in its very earliest days had to come up against. And it's really an absolute miracle that we have the nation that we have today because it was really just a very unorganized group of people who somehow came together to achieve independence from the imperial forces of Great Britain. But it says in March of 1783, a growing number of American military officers, discouraged by a lack of regular pay and ongoing financial support, began to openly discuss options that included a wanton disbandment of the army or possibly even a military show of force pointed directly at Congress. So you had this group in the the revolutionary military, it was really the continental military at the time, who was operating under the Articles of Confederation. They came to this place where they said, we're tired of not eating well, the the troops said. We're tired of being mistreated. We're going to come against the government. So it's almost like a military developing within the, the revolutionary forces. And it actually ended up with a name called the Newburgh Conspiracy. So if you ever want to research that further, the Newburgh Conspiracy. So Washington, General George Washington, had learned about this conspiracy through a printed camp circular document, uh, which appeared March 15, 1783. And he goes to this group of leaders who was organizing this conspiracy and this coup, and this is what he said. He said, my God. Why can this writer have in view by recommending such measures? Can he be a friend of the army? Can he be a friend of this country? Rather, is he not an insidious foe? He went and he uh, directly uh, confronted the conspiracy. He confronted the rebellion with great courage. And it says that this display of self-sacrifice from their long-standing leader deeply affected many of the officers who in turn abandoned their treasonous thoughts and returned the obvious affection of their leader. Today, Caleb's situation is very similar. Caleb was a part of the minority. Caleb was coming against a great rebellion that was stewing against God and his promises. And we're going to see that Caleb came out with unshakable faith. So the bulk of our our sermon is going to be found in Numbers. So if you will, go ahead and let's turn over to Numbers. We're going to start in chapter 13. We're going to go back and we're going to look at this historical event in detail. Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. And we're going to start here just in verse 6. So there are going to be four different developments in this story of Caleb. And each one is going to point back to the fact that he had unshakable faith. And the fact that his unshakable faith was rooted in the promises of God. 
who can always be trusted. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that I want you to see about Caleb is Caleb was chosen. Caleb was chosen. We find that in Numbers chapter 13, verse 6. Here we have a list of the individuals whom were chosen to go into the promised land and spy it out. And in verse 6, we see Caleb mentioned, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Judah. So the question is, who chose Caleb? Who, who made these decisions? Well, we know ultimately, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, that it wasn't God who decided for the spies to go in. That was really never part of God's plan. That was part of the children of Israel's plan. And if you go to Deuteronomy 1 and read that later, you're going to see that the people actually uh, came and petitioned Moses in order to send spies in. So the question is, well, who chose them? Well, we find out later that it was indeed Moses who selected the leaders in the 12 tribes, found in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 23. But the fact that he was chosen means a lot for us as Christians today. Because when we talk about unshakable faith, we talk about having faith that doesn't waver, faith that even in the face of the most challenging times holds true and holds steady, we have to ask ourselves, what is going on here? And we have to understand that the only way to have faith is that we ourselves have to be chosen. The Bible teaches us this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. That's pretty strong language there, isn't it? There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. So now we're thinking about this idea of unshakable faith, faith that can stand the test of time, faith that can stand the test of all circumstances, and we wonder, how can a person acquire such faith? Well, the only way that we can acquire such faith is we must have an interaction, an intersection with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit one day came my way. When I was a six-year-old little boy, I remember the conviction that I was under. And I remember that if I don't trust Jesus, I'm hopeless. If I don't trust Jesus, I'm going to die and go to a place called hell because of my sin. Because the weight and the burden of my sin was weighing on me so heavily. You may say, well, Ben, so you just decided you were going to get saved one day? Well, did you hear what Romans 3 said? Romans 3 said I would never do that. Romans 3 said there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. The Bible is telling me here that there is never going to come a place in a human's life if they're left to themselves and if they make their own choices that they will ever actually choose God or seek God. That's powerful. So what that tells me is, is that God must choose me. That tells me that God had to come my way. God had to wake me up. And God had to present his son to me and say, Ben, will you accept my son? Based upon his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. There is no one who seeks after God. Hey, listen, Caleb would have had nothing to do with this if he hadn't have been chosen. Caleb would have had no say in what happened in the promised land if Moses had not have chosen him that day to be a part of the spies. Did you know today that you can't have unshakable faith unless there was a time and a place in your life when the Holy Spirit came your way? Unless there was a time and a place in your life when the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin and showed you your fallen state and presented you the Lord Jesus Christ as a gift? 
There would be no hope for you to have that unshakable faith. Now, like I said, I'm not saying that non-Christians can't have faith. They have faith all the time. They have faith that the sun's going to come up every day. They have faith that their job is going to be open their next day at work. They have faith that their lights are going to be on when they pay the light bill. Non-Christians have faith, but they don't have the kind of faith that we have. They don't have the kind of faith that is rooted in a spotless, undefeated record of promise-keeping and rooted in the creator of the universe, the one who can do all things, the one who knows all things, the one who made all things. So our faith is different, but our faith has to start with the day in your life when you were chosen by the Holy Spirit. Now you may say, well, Ben, how do I know if I was chosen? Have you said yes to Jesus? Hey, listen, it's not that difficult. If you said yes to Jesus... You said yes to Jesus because God came your way. You said yes to Jesus because you were convicted of your sin by the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin. You could not be convicted of your sin if not for the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6 say this, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless in love before him, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. You may say, Ben, I don't know how I can ever have unshakable faith. Well, listen, it's not about your ability. It's not about how much you believe. It's not about how much emotion that you can muster in order to try to believe more. Listen, the faith is rooted in Jesus. The faith is based upon the power and the record of Jesus. Your faith is based upon the God who created everything out of nothing simply by speaking it into existence. Now you say, Ben, I just can't believe that much. Listen, I'm not talking about the amount of faith. I'm talking about the person you're placing your faith in. Listen, if you get the person right, if you place your faith in the right person, I don't care how much faith you've got because he's doing the rest. Because he's the one that is able to achieve all things. He is the one that can do anything above and beyond your imagination. It's all God. And when we start to try to talk about this idea that you just got to muster up enough faith, you just got to believe enough in order for God to act and for God to do his will, that's hogwash. Listen, we are fallen. And listen, God's success is not dependent upon your amount of faith. God is going to achieve his will with or without us. The Bible teaches us God doesn't even need us. He willingly sent his son in order to save us because he loves us. See, we don't make God more God. We don't make God any better. We don't make God any stronger, any more powerful. He is all sufficient exactly as he is and has been for eternity past. God loves us though. And if you're gonna have faith, just make sure the person you're putting your faith in is the right person. And if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, hey, listen, he's gonna take care of the rest. He's going to handle it for you. And he's going to make sure that you are used for his glory and that you are taken care of. Everything, and I want you to hear this, everything is null and void if you are not first chosen. Caleb was able to exercise his faith because he was chosen. 
The second thing that I want us to see about Caleb, as we think about this unshakable faith, Caleb was confident. He was confident. And we see that in Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, where the Bible says this, same chapter, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. See, he was... See, George Washington really took a page from Caleb's book. Because as the nation of Israel was saying, no, we can't do it, we can't do it. And oh, they're whining, they're crying. Oh, there's no way we can defeat the giants in the land of Canaan. You've got Caleb here standing up in the midst of a rebellion that's about to unleash itself against God. And he, he quieted them. He said, be quiet and listen for a minute. Let's go up now and take possession of the land Because, well, we can hopefully conquer it? No. He said, because we can certainly conquer it. He was confident. You know, in mathematics, there's a mathematical principle that we can really use here. All right? Now, I'm not a fan of mathematics. That's why I'm a preacher. Some of you guys like math, and I don't know what's wrong with you, but I'm I'm glad you're around. We can determine the basic belief system that Caleb had by using the same method that we use in math to reduce fractions. So if you have a fraction, you can divide the numerator and the denominator by the same number, and you can get a reduced fraction that is actually equal to the larger. It says this, even if in, like, let's let's take uh, four-eighths, all right? So when you take four-eighths and you reduce it to its simplest form, it becomes what? There we go. We do have a few people in here. Y'all must not have gone to Inca, huh? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Uh, Sorry, Inca teachers. Just playing, Katha. Um, As we hear Caleb's heart, what is his simplest belief that dictated everything else? Caleb could probably sum up his belief very simply like this. If God says it, it'll happen. And that's it. If God says it, it'll happen. And his entire speech here to the nation of Israel, pleading for them not to rebel against God, all is founded in this simple belief that if God says it, he'll do it. Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, God is speaking to the children of Israel, and he says this. He says, And I have come down to rescue them, talking about the children of Israel, from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Here, before... God told the children of Israel, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this land, this land that is already inhabited by these people because I love you, because I want to rescue you from the power of the Egyptians. This is not a, a land that is just okay. This is the best land. This is a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that is plentiful, a land that is rich, and a land that is good. He made that promise in Exodus 3.8, and you know what? Caleb was not going to let go of that promise. Caleb was not just going to cast God's promise aside, and just because things looked rough, or just because everyone's emotion was working up, he wasn't going to give up the fact that God said it, so it's going to happen. God said it, and it's going to come true. Caleb's belief system, if God says it, then it'll happen. You know what? I believe every one of us need to adopt that same belief system. You know what's beautiful about that? God's word right here. You say, well, God doesn't ever speak to me in an audible voice, Ben. Well, rarely does he do that. Rarely does he do that anymore. 
But you know how he speaks to us in this day and age in the dispensation of grace? Through the Bible. You know what that means? If these are his words from Genesis to Revelation, every word contained in all 66 books, then that means what this says is true. And if he says he's going to do it in here, then he'll do it. That means in your deep and dark, troubling moments, you can find encouragement from the Bible. Because the Bible says that if we'll just pour out our heart to the Lord, if we'll uh, come to him with prayer and supplication, that, and make our, our requests and our needs known to God, hey, that he will give us peace that passes all understanding. Hey, when you feel like there's no way out, when you feel like you know, there's the world's coming against you, the Bible teaches us that God will never leave us or forsake us. So when you can stand on those promises, you start to realize the God who has the perfect record from eternity past, has never told a lie, can't tell a lie, has always kept his promises, has just told me that he'll never leave me or forsake me. So we, like Caleb, can stand on the promises. We, like Caleb, even in the midst of a majority of people, if you look at our society, who disbelieve God or hate God, even in the midst of that, we can stand on the promises of God because we know they're going to come true. So when we think about that, we understand that as Caleb stood before the people, even though that had to be a, a, a very daunting thing, he had full confidence. He didn't get up there with a shaky voice and, well, I don't know if God's going to do this or not, but I'm just going to say it anyways. No, he got up there and forcefully said, God will certainly give us this land. He promised it and he is going to do it. And I'm thankful for that kind of confidence. That confidence comes from unshakable faith, which is rooted in the God of the universe. So the third thing that happened here in this narrative about Caleb, Caleb cried. So if you're taking notes, write this down, Caleb cried. And you might be saying, Ben, are you kidding me? You're talking about somebody crying and having unshakable faith? Yes, Caleb cried. If you will, just flip over to the next chapter there, Numbers 14, and we're going to start in verse 5. Numbers 14, beginning in verse 5. And the Bible says this, Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. Now this is after the community said, We will not go in and possess the land. We will not believe God. We cannot win this battle. And as a matter of fact, Aaron and Moses, you've brought us out here to die and we're going to stone you. So this is following that whole interaction with the nation of Israel, those who rejected the promises of God. All right? So Moses and Aaron's first reaction is to fall face down in front of everyone. And then verse 6, we've got the two spies who actually believed God. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. It says, these were among those who scouted out the land, in verse 6, they tore their clothes. And said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Man, still had that unshakable faith. But the phrase that I want to point you to is the fact that Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. What does that mean, they tore their clothes? Well, it's true that expressions of grief vary from culture to culture. Depending on the culture you're in, they show their grief in different ways. In our context here in Western North Carolina, a lot of times you're going to see families come together at the death of a loved one. You're going to see them congregate 
at the home of one of the family members or maybe even at the home of the deceased. And then you're going to see many times people wear black in those difficult times as they show grief. You're going to see people bring food to their home in that time of grief. And that's just in our cultural context. Some aboriginal people in Australia, it says they cut themselves across the chest and the arms as an expression of mourning, and I do not recommend that. Buddhists actually give presents to the deceased, and they wear white. But here we see that Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. It says that the tearing of one's clothes in an ancient tradition among the Jews is associated with mourning, grief, and loss. The first mention of someone tearing their garments was found in Genesis when Reuben came back to the pit that they had cast Joseph in, and Joseph was not there. In other words, Reuben tore his clothes because he thought Joseph had died. And here you have Joshua and Caleb. No one's died at this point, but they're tearing their clothes as though someone had died. It was such a deep uh, level of grief that they said, it's as though someone has died and we are in great mourning because of what Israel has chosen to do. Because Israel has chosen to rebel against God. You heard what Joshua and Caleb said. They pled with them, don't rebel. Don't turn your back on God. This is a great land and he'll surely give it to us. They were speaking from their heart. That I would imagine that that speech was the most important speech they'd ever made in their entire lives. And they were giving all of their emotion and all of their energy to it because they believed so much that the detriment of the nation was coming because they refused to believe God. You know, one thing that I think about as we talk about this unshakable faith, do we really believe God's word? And the reason I ask that is, is because God's word teaches that if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, and you stand before God one day after this life is over, he'll tell you, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, where, where do you depart to? A after this encounter with God and your name's not been written in the Lamb's book of life, where do you go? Well, the Bible teaches us of a place called hell, a place that was originally created for Satan and his demons after they rebelled against God, for them to be cast in forever and ever, to burn and to be tormented. But then we see that man falls into sin and that without Christ, without redemption, without the forgiveness of sins, man goes to that same place. Well, you know, Caleb was, was speaking from, a, from an unshakable faith because he knew that if we reject God, we're inviting judgment. If we reject God, we are, in, we are taking the protection that the creator of the universe has placed upon us, and we're telling him we don't need him anymore. Well, as Christians today, we have to have an unshakable faith that truly believes that if someone dies without Jesus, that they're going to go to a place called hell. And that unshakable faith in the truth rooted in Scripture, in the, in the same one that cannot lie, who has told us about where people go who don't know Christ, that same truth must motivate us to go into a lost and a dying world and tell them about Jesus. Because the unshakable faith that we have says, yes, just as much as I believe heaven is real, just as much as I believe that Jesus is God's Son and God in the flesh, I must also believe that the same capacity and the same level that hell is real and that hell exists. Because listen, if the Bible says it, what did we say? It's true. If God's words are true, all of these words are God's, then hell does exist. Caleb was speaking from that same kind of a heart. 
because he knew God and he knew the promises of God. Today, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you shall be saved. That ought to motivate us to go into a lost and a dying world and share with the same heart that Caleb did that day in the face of all the opposition that we're going to face in this world, making coworkers angry, making community members angry, possibly offending people because we're sharing with them about Jesus, we must be willing to do that because of our faith. Now, you might be one of these who say, Ben, you know, I'm just not that invasive. Uh, you know, I don't know that we really ought to go into their lives and try to tell them about Jesus. I think we kind of let them come to us. Well, listen, you don't have the heart of Caleb. You don't have the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the least of these, who intersected the lives of lost people. Did you know that every person you share the gospel with is not going to be happy to hear what you have to say? Did y'all know that? They're, they're gonna, that? They may look at you and say, I don't want it. But you know what? That's not what should motivate you. The, the people willing to embrace your message is not what should motivate you. What should motivate you is the unshakable faith that you have in the fact that God's words are true. And that if a person dies without Jesus, they're going to spend an eternity in outer darkness. Hey, you know what? I hope we get the hearts of Caleb. And that's why I'm fired up about Bible school. Hey, Bible school, that falls right in line with the heart of Caleb. Because we're going to be sharing Jesus with our community. People who may have not been in church for years, may have never, children who may have never stepped foot in a church, we're going to have the opportunity to share with them about Jesus. To share with them the words of God which are always true, the words that can bring them into a relationship with the king of kings. Lastly, before we close, I want you to see this about Caleb. Caleb celebrated. Now, we can get behind this, can't we? We like to celebrate. Caleb celebrated. And we're going to find that in Numbers 14, verse 24. So if you'll go down just a little bit further there in chapter 14, beginning in verse 24. The Bible says this about Caleb. But since my servant Caleb has a different spirit and has remained loyal to me, I will bring him into the land where he has gone and his descendants will inherit it. Now, this is coming off the heels of God saying, every corpse of every person in this generation will fall into the dust of the desert before I let you into the promised land. And after he says that, the most awful news a nation could ever hear, he follows it up by saying, but Caleb. Remember, uh, Alan was talking about those good butts and those get bad butts in Scripture? Well, this is a really good but for Caleb. Beginning in verse 24, But since my servant Caleb has a different spirit, man, I'd like to have that different spirit that Caleb had, wouldn't you? And has remained loyal to me. Did you hear that? God found Caleb to be someone who was loyal to him. I will bring him into the land where he has gone, and his descendants will inherit it. You know what? I would have much rather been a descendant of Caleb back then than one of those other ten tribes. They were going to inherit the gift. And Caleb was going to get to see it with his own eyes. Listen, Caleb was a part of that fallen generation. Caleb was a part of that cursed generation. Caleb was to the place where he had even seen what life was like in Egypt. He was one of those guys who was an adult when God delivered them from Egypt and was able to see where they came from the full 40 years in the wilderness and lay his eyes on the promised land. One of only two people in the nation that was actually able to do that, Caleb and Joshua. You hear a story about a man named Samuel Whitmore. Now, this man grew up in England, 
And he worked hard to become a commander for the king's army. It says that his journey led him to fight France in France in multiple encounters, and he even fought throughout the Indian Wars. After a life of battle, he retired and made his way to America and fell in love with his country. The senior would give anything to free the colonies from suppression when the Revolutionary War broke out. During an April day, England's troops were beginning to get together in Boston. After a few battles in the cities of Concord and Lexington, the men were met by 50 American sympathizers. Now, Whittemore was British, but he came to America and considered himself an American. It says, as Whittemore caught wind of the fight that ensued, the peaceful farmer that roamed the earth for eight decades jumped into the mix to protect the ideals the colony stood for. Did you hear that? Eight decades, okay? In plain English, he was 80 years old. The old veteran set up his musket and loaded up dual pistols to show the young British what they were truly up against while they were in America. Listen to this. When Samuel, I'm sorry, let me get here. When Samuel opened the front door, the English forces were marching along the street right in front of him. He was in perfect spot to strike fear in the heart of the British. Listen to what he did. The elderly man opened fire and had little time to reload. So he pulled out his saber, okay, talking about a sword, killing anyone who tried to get close enough to kill the mighty farmer. Sadly, a British soldier shot him straight in the face. Then others stabbed him multiple times to ensure the old man got what he had coming and then left him for dead. Think, man, that story's over, right? Nope. When his townsmen and family ran to hug their dead vigilante, they actually stumbled upon the man with a dozen stab wounds and a bullet to the face reloading his gun. The town forced Samuel out of action, I think he'd earned that, and quickly addressed his wounds. The beloved farmer lived another two decades. Can you believe that? 80-year-old man lived two more decades. But now his impact for taking action was much bigger. It says, as news spread like wildfire across the colony, he sparked many to stand up and fight for American independence and was later declared the state hero of Massachusetts. Now let's check out Caleb here for just a minute. You say, what has this got to do with Caleb, Ben? Let's go forward quickly to Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14. Now we're on the other side of the 40-year wilderness wanderings, okay? We're on the other side of it. The children of Israel are about to cross into the promised land and actually have crossed into the promised land at this point, have already fought many battles. Caleb's still hanging on. Joshua 14, beginning in verse 6. Let's see what Caleb has to say at this point in his life. It says, The descendants of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, now remember, about 45 years have passed since we last heard from Caleb. You know what the Lord promised Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me? Remember, he's still standing on those promises. I was 40 years old when Moses, the Lord's servant, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to scout the land, and I brought back an honest report. Remember the good report that Caleb brought back? Verse 8, my brothers who went with me caused the people to lose heart, but I followed the Lord, my God, completely. On that day, Moses swore to me, the land where you have set foot will be an inheritance for you and your descendants forever because you have followed the Lord, my God, completely. As you see, the Lord has kept me alive these 45 years as he promised. Since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel was journeying in the wilderness, here I am today, 85 years old. Think, okay, he's probably ready to settle down, isn't he? I am still as strong today as I was the day Moses sent me out. Now, when I'm 85, listen, if I can say that, hallelujah, but I'm not as strong as I was 10 years ago. 
Caleb's 45 years, 85 years old, 45 years have passed, and he said, listen, I'm still as strong as I was when I was 45. Praise the Lord. And then you get on down there, and he says this. He said, um, now give me this hill country. He's, he's demanding the promise. He's saying, give me what's been promised to me because I know my Lord keeps it. Now give me this hill country the Lord promised me on that day because you heard then that the Anakim are there who were the giants, who were the great enemy that they were all so worried about, as well as large fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has promised. Now I want you to think about this just for a minute. 45-year-old man pleading with the nation, God is going to give us the victory. God is going to deliver us and give us this land he has promised. And in 45 years, guess what? Caleb didn't let go of that promise. For 45 years, he stands at 85, and he's standing at the threshold of the land again, just like he had 45 years ago, and his heart remains the same. He says, listen, I'm 85. Give me the land Basically, give me permission to go in and kick the hind ends of the people who are on my land. And I'm going to go do it. In the midst of his victory, he kept fighting. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we step back and we say, you know what? It's time for me to back down. It's time for me to settle in, just kind of play it easy. You know, God's been good to me. You know, that's not, that's not the Bible. That's not what God has for you. In the victories, you keep fighting. You don't quit until God takes your last breath. Caleb, an 85-year-old man, says, I'll go and fight the giants. I'll go and fight their brothers. And anyone who stands in between me and the promises of God, I'm going to let God be with me on that, and he'll take care of it. Hey, today, church, my heart for you is that you would have the heart of Caleb, that you would have the unshakable faith that Caleb had, that resulted in victory, that resulted in pursuing for the kingdom of God. We live in a community that needs Jesus that needs to hear about Jesus. We live in a community that is plagued by drug use. We live in a community that is plagued by fatherless homes. We live in a community that is plagued by people not going to church and not knowing the word of God. And God has put Pole Creek right here so that we can go and we can reach this community. And it is gonna be our mission as a church to continue to do just that. Let's pray.